Thank you, Melody. And blessed be God. The name of the Lord. God is with us. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, open our Bibles uh, to John 14 as we uh, tackle another question in this sermon series uh, that we've looked at. Uh, God, I have a question. It's not too late to submit any questions that you may have uh, for God or that you want to share. Uh, You can send me an email, Facebook message, see me after the service, uh, any way that you'd like to do so. Uh, But today's big topic is how can Christianity claim to be the only way? And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we tackle uh, this passage in John chapter 14, uh, verse 6. Uh, Before we do so, let's begin in prayer. Father, we uh, come this morning giving praise to your name. You are are worth uh, every word and every deed that uh, that we can do, that we can give. And I pray, Father, that uh, as you continue uh, to sustain us and continue to guide and lead us, we pray this morning that you'll guide and lead us as we study uh, your word. We're grateful uh, for your spirit. We're grateful for your son, Jesus Christ. It's his name that we do pray. Amen. I've been using uh, a book uh, by Timothy Keller uh, entitled The Reason for God. It's a good read, and uh, he tackles a lot of questions uh, that folks have asked uh, during his time as minister in New York City. And uh, he had a couple quotes in this chapter uh, that I read in preparation for the sermon uh, that really stood out, and I want to share those quotes with you. Uh, Blair asked this question, how could there just be one true faith? And she goes on to say that it's arrogant to say that your religion is superior and then try to convert everyone else to it. Surely all religions are equally good and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. Jeff adds that religious exclusive, exclusivity, exclusivity, ah, I said it, I, I practiced it even, you know what I mean. It's not just narrow, he says it's dangerous. Religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and then other religions do as well, the world will never know peace. Now, the concerns of these two New York City residents should not be shrugged off as ignorant and uninformed. This morning, I want to address their concerns with sincerity and explore this divisive passage in John 14, 6. Let's read. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am the way. Jesus says, I am the truth. Jesus says, I am the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through him. 
Now, this text is divisive. And and Blair and Jeff in New York City are not the only two people throughout history who have challenged Jesus' words here in John 14. There have been arguments made to condemn these words of Jesus. And I want to explore each of those arguments. I'm going to ask you to write the arguments down and then uh, think about uh, the ways that we work through each of the arguments. Uh, That's going to be our task this morning as we talk together. Uh, The first argument made is that each religion sees in part, each religion sees in part, but that none could actually see the whole. Now, this comes from an ancient Indian parable. It goes like this. A group of blind men heard that there was a strange animal called an elephant that had been brought to town. But none of them were aware of its shape or form. And so out of curiosity, they said, we must inspect and know it by touch of which we are capable So they sought it out, and when they found it, they groped about. And the first person whose hand landed on the trunk said, Well, this this elephant, it must be thick like a snake. And the other whose hand reached its ear, he said, This elephant, it seems like a fan. For another person whose hand was upon its leg, the elephant's like a, a pillar, like a tree trunk. The blind man who placed his hand upon his side said, it's, this elephant's kind of like a wall. Another felt its tail, said it's, it, it felt like a rope. And the last felt its tusk, stating the elephant is a hard and smooth spear. Now Christianity in this parable is viewed as one of the many blind men who could only feel in part could only feel in part, and therefore had a different view of the elephant, and therefore could not accurately depict the truth. Now last week, I visited a friend of mine in Kingston. I'd never been to his house, so I put his address in Google Maps, as you do. And while I was traveling along Interstate 40, the directions told me to exit at Cedar Bluff. Now, I've been to Kingston before, and I know for a fact you don't exit at Cedar Bluff if you're trying to get to Kingston. That's a horrible exit. You've got to pass the 4075 split. So in my ignorance and, and in my arrogance, I denounced Google Maps declared it as broken and wrong until I saw the standstill traffic just past Cedar Bluff. (laughs) Google wanted me to hop off, take North Peters over to Lovell Road, as you would do, and hop back on 40 there at Lovell Road. Now, this Indian parable is, is really good, and it's a reminder that we as Christians, or even individuals, many times don't see the whole picture that someone or something else sees. Much like I was unable to see the accident past Cedar Bluff, right? 
But it comes up empty when we ask this question. Who can see the elephant? The skeptic believes that he sees the elephant. And that all these religions are groping around and grasping around to find the truth. But the problem is, the skeptic has no more authority to say that my worldview or his worldview sees the whole elephant. We all have to step out of faith and say that we're the ones that could actually see it. We're the ones that aren't actually blind. And we believe that the one who is not blind, the one who is accurately seeing the bigger picture, is God, the creator of the universe, the Lord of heaven and earth. And we choose to place our trust, we choose to place our trust in that authority. The early disciples declared it in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. When they say salvation is found in no one else. For there is no one, under, no one no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And that's, that's, the, that's the gospel, right? That's the truth. That we're the ones that could actually see the whole truth. Now, the second major argument to uh, tackle this morning is actually uh, somewhat of a combination of two arguments. Uh, but I'm going to put it this way. It's arrogant and it's unfair to say that your religion is right. So the first question we asked is that each religion sees in part, but none can see the whole. Our response to that is that we can actually only see the whole through the God, the creator of the universe. The second argument is that it is arrogant and unfair to say that your religion is right. You see, the, the uh, argument is built upon the notion that every religion is historically and culturally conditioned. If uh, Dale Peterson was born in Morocco, more than likely Dale Peterson would be a Muslim. If, uh, if Austin was built, uh, born in Thailand, he would probably be a Buddhist. People think and do largely because of where they were socially conditioned to do so. That's the argument. And on the surface, the argument doesn't work because you can't say all claims about religion are historically conditioned except the one that I'm making now, right? <laughs> if I was a pluralist, I can't say that that one is, is uh, true because I'm born in the United States where that's socially conditioned as well, right? It may be harder to be a Christian in Morocco or Thailand, but that doesn't make Christianity wrong. Let me share with you what makes Christianity different from the other religions. The God of Christianity transcends all cultural and social walls. The God of Christianity pursues people of every race, gender, and nationality. And remember, Jesus told the parable of the sheep in this way. He says in Luke 15, 4, he says, that what, what do you do if you've got a hundred sheep and you lose one? Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? 
And this truth is historically seen throughout the Old Testament. Notice when God called Abraham, he declared in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, he said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And if we were to just pause there, we would say, yeah, God favored the nation of Israel. But God goes on and says, I will bless those you bless. I will curse those you curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, even from the very get-go, when God chooses Abraham and the nation of Israel, he's also choosing the whole world. He chose that nation to bless everyone, all the people on earth, not exclusively Abraham. And when Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land, we are reminded by Rahab that God was still looking for lost sheep. In Joshua chapter 2, she says, We have heard about how the Lord dried up the water on the Red Sea for you and when you came out of Egypt. And, you, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. And listen to this. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Here is someone who is not culturally a Jew declaring that God is the Lord of heaven and earth. On their way to Jericho, a prostitute, Gentile woman, declared that God is the Lord of heaven and earth. You see, God was pursuing his lost sheep even in Joshua chapter 2. And then, of course, we all know the passage in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 11. After Jonah was sulking because God spared the city of Nineveh, God said to Jonah, but Nineveh has 120,000 people. Can we call them lost sheep who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And they got a bunch of cattle too. Should I not be concerned about this great city? God, from even as early as the Old Testament, has been pursuing, and you do not find that in any other major religion. God pursues people. And he crosses cultural and social barriers. The final argument that's made, the first one that, that we don't see the whole, the second one that it's arrogant and unfair, the final one here, all major religions are equally valid and they just basically say the same thing. Now, this generalization, I believe, is easily refuted. I mean, just for a moment, when, when you make such a general statement, just for a moment, consider the, the minor sects and the minor uh, religions that maybe 
uh, do child sacrifice or, or maybe do uh, things of hatred and bigotry. I mean, anyone with a brain looks at that and says, it's inferior. And it doesn't teach the same thing that others do. And, and most skeptics would agree and say that th this statement is referring to mainstream religions, uh, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam. But do they say the same thing? Do they all believe in the same God? If a skeptic is pressed, maybe they would say that the God they believe in, that's the same as all the other gods, is an all-loving spirit. But the problem is, is that Buddhists don't believe in a personal God. And Islam believes in a God who holds people accountable for their beliefs and practices and whose attributes cannot all be reduced to love. The truth is, Christianity is the only God, has the only God who is out there to pursue. The foundation of our faith is that of grace. And I don't only mean grace as it's extended to us, because that's a beautiful part of grace. But Christians have this grace that we extend to others as well. And you don't see this kind of grace in other religions. I mean, take, for example, the prodigal son. He went to his father, asked for his inheritance. He then took that inheritance, went off to a foreign land where he squandered all he had. He was alone. He was broke. He was destitute. And he found a job feeding pigs. He was so hungry, he was so broke that he longed to eat the pig food and decided it'd be better to go back to dad. Maybe, just maybe, dad would hire him on his farm. Maybe dad would hire him as a servant. And he thought about how dad's servants were treated so much better and they weren't hungry. This is where the story doesn't make sense when you line it up with other major religions. The son had denounced, disgraced, and embarrassed his father. The son didn't deserve a job, and he certainly didn't deserve the actions that his father would do. His father runs to his son. He embraces his son. He wouldn't even let him beg for a job. He put new clothes on him. He put a ring on his finger. He accepted this prodigal son as his own and he threw him a party in contrast his brother is all other major religions because he looked at his son and refused to extend grace you see his brother who was eating with the pigs deserved that he had embarrassed he had disgraced he had denounced his God. He worked hard, this, this major religion, this other son. He worked hard. And he's the one that deserved the party. He worked hard. He's the one that deserved his father's love. But Christianity teaches that the prodigal son deserved the party because of grace. Remember in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when Paul says 
God demonstrates his own love for us in this. When we were perfect, when we had worked hard for him, no. While we were still sinners. When we were eating with the pigs. When we had chosen to denounce, embarrass our Father. He embraces us where we are. And he makes us new. He puts new clothes on us. He puts a ring on our finger. And he throws us a party. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all. He sent his very son, not because he is a God of hate, but because he's a God of love who pursues. It's an invitation for everyone, an invitation that for throughout history has crossed cultural and social barriers and is extended throughout the world. The invitation is for everyone, even you, right where you sit. It doesn't matter your past, and it certainly doesn't matter your present, but it will alter your future drastically. As we prepare today for communion, we reflect upon this Jesus who paid it all. A Jesus that is different than anything else this world has ever seen, which is why we can confidently say that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray together. Father, you are amazing. And I praise you for extending that invitation throughout this world and to utilize us as people, not because we're better, but because we're not. Because we want to free people from the bondage of sin. We want to free people from the way this world has behaved and continues to become. We know that you have changed the world through your kingdom and you've invited us to be part of that change, have invited us to be part of transformation. And I pray, dear Lord, that you will do just that in our lives today. Transform us, change us, guide us, lead us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.